So I'm sat in my living room looking at a space in South Wales and sat in that space is Matt Pritchard. Matt, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm really good. Just starting my morning, really. Well, no, I, well I'm not just starting it. I started at four o'clock in the morning, but... Yeah, it's uh, currently half past nine in the morning, so I've done a lot already. It's lunchtime for you. <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so I was watching on Instagram this morning. You do start really early, right? And, and I'm an early riser as well. And um, what is it that like early starts bring you? Why, why do you get up so early and why do you get active so early? There's a few reasons, really. Discipline. Uh, I mean, getting up before. I mean, I set my lamp at four o'clock in the morning, every, six days a week. And it gives me, yeah, it's just discipline to get up because not everyone wants to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. But you know, some days I'm like I'm up before that, and I, I'm I'm up and out. But um, it's just so I've got a routine as well. Uh, because if I haven't got a routine, my head goes sideways. So that's another reason why I wake up at four o'clock. It's a peaceful part of the day. Nobody's around. Not really a massive fan of loads of humans and loads of people. So. Well, I have a coffee first, and then I go to the gym because uh, it's a twenty-four hour gym, and there's just literally no one in there. Maybe two people or something, and I've got the whole gym to myself. And then by the time I finish and I'm done, people start coming into the gym. So I'm in, done my stuff, I'm out, and then I go down to the local. And then then it's Lemmy's turn. Then so I get picked Lemmy up from the house, and I go to my local park. And there's like a a mile and a half walk around Roof Park Lake, which is full of wildlife and stuff. And it's been a place I've been going since I was a kid. So I take a plastic bag and a rubbish picker upper. So I walk in and I pick up the rubbish whilst I do the, the loop, tie it up at the end, jump in the car, come back home, have something to eat, have some breakfast or whatever. And then sometimes I'll, I'll go, me go for a run or I go for a bike ride, depending on the weather. And then uh, then I start my day. <laughs> That sounds like you've already started. And I get it, right? So we're up, I'm up at five. I'm not, I'm not up at four, but I'm up at five. And we walk. We live in the National Forest. It's all coal mining where we are over in Derbyshire, um, South Derbyshire, Northwest Leicestershire. So it's all been replanted. So we do a walk, jump in the lake for a swim, walk back. And we're back home for half seven. And I feel like I've, you know, I feel like I'm, a, I'm alive. And like you, I love other people, but on my terms, I don't want to be chatting all the way around. I want to be walking and, and, and seeing the birds and swimming and all that sort of stuff. But look, I always ask the same three questions. They're always about your childhood. So tell me what your childhood, tell me what it tasted like, tell me what it smelled like, and tell me what it sounded like. What my childhood tasted like? Mm, what's the uh, overriding flavours from your childhood? That's a good question. What, like proper taste, as in what sort yeah. of like mentally in my head? You can take that any way you want, Matt. I wouldn't have a clue. What did it taste of? If you close your eyes and think back to being seven, we'll go really practical. What's the abiding flavours in your mouth when you were seven? <laughs> Bubble gum for me. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I don't know. My imagination. Well, I normally got good imagination. Why, why would I know? Seven. What would I... Cheap food. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have much money back then, so it was, you know, I was speaking to my mother about it the other day. She used to make um, tomato sandwiches and put them in a, an oven dish with milk and bake it. So, look, we weren't having sandwiches for dinner. <laughs> That's amazing. 
Yeah, that's what we used to have for them. Yeah, one of those creams, one of those sweets. I tell you what, yes, I got it. Bombay mix. Oh. That's what it reminds me of. Because when my mother used to be a mad health, well, hippie freak, and she used to go to like a, a shop, which is still open now called the Spice of Life, which I go to now. And we used to, she used to get us a weekend treat that wasn't sweet or anything because she didn't agree with us having sugar and stuff when we were younger. So she got us Bombay mix. So my childhood reminds me of Bombay mix or peanuts, red skin peanuts. Oh, red skin peanuts. They've got that bitter edge that is really pleasant. It's just bitter enough. Yeah, and yeah. a milky nut, right? It's and a, the milky nut, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, do you know what? You've, you've taken me back. I'm 53, 54 nearly. But so I think I'm older than you. But growing up in a similar health food oriented, I had the yin and the yang. My mum and dad kind of like bread that you couldn't cut. It was so solid and health food snacks. My nan ran a sweet shop in Coventry. So I had I had the yin and the yang. I had this kind of wholesome lifestyle and then Bazooka Joe. A sweet shop? Oh, that would have been ace as a kid. I got no tea. I was not allowed to go. My mother wouldn't let me have anything. I mean, if we had chocolate when we were young, we weren't even allowed chocolate. We had to have carob chocolate. Yeah, my mum and dad bought carob chocolate, but my nan gave me as much dairy milk as I wanted. It was really interesting. Split. Yeah, so when you went to your nan's house, it was a massive treat, and I yeah, think it's everywhere. The winner, as soon as you go to your nan's house, you get you know, yes, I'm going to get spoiled. Totally, absolutely right. So that was the taste. I love that. The taste of, of, well, actually, there's two things here. The taste of Bombay mix, but I actually really like the fact that you got the taste of the spice of life. That's the thing that's really rattling around my head. Yeah, and, and the smell... Of the smell of the shop was called the Spice of Life. The smell of that shop is still the same smell now as it was back then. So every time I walk in there, it just reminds me of my childhood. You know, I was down in London last night having a curry on Drummond Street, which was like the original Brick Lane. It's where the original South Indian population settled back in the late 40s. And there's a shop there called Gupta's, Samosa Shop. And um, when I was working in London on my placement year in 1990, I used to go there to buy samosas for my boss and cycle back with a bag of samosas on the end of each of my handlebars, cycle back up to Camden. And I'd forgotten about it for about 10 years, 15 years. And I wandered in 15 years, maybe even 20 years after that. And um, Mr. Gupta, who, who isn't called Mr. Gupta, everyone calls him uncle. I walked in and he said, and the smell, it was that curtain of smell, so beautiful. And he said, hello, my friend, it's been a long time. And I went... What? And he said, you used to come here for your boss and take a bite. Oh, well, he still remembered you. Remember me, yeah. Wow. Uh, Mr. Gupta has all of my Samosa budget. Like, every penny goes to him. He's he's amazing. And um, I haven't seen him for three years. Yeah, he'd stopped just before COVID and was running another shop. And I was on Drummond Street last night getting a tally, and he was unloading his van. And I, I just gave him this mega hug. But it was, the, it was the warmth of the smell of the man. It was the shop smells as much of him as it does of the food that he makes. It's just wonderful. You know, those places sometimes. It's great because they bring back memories, the smells of certain places. That smells a time machine, right? It is It is the thing. So the smell of your childhood, are we going with the spice of life being the smell of your childhood? Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. And then what did your childhood sound like? I just know that you've got into this conversation. The other smell of my childhood is hot summers. That hot summer holiday smell where well, we only ever went on one holiday, and that was in, that was to cause in Greece. But um, you know when it's been dry for a long time and then it rains and you've got that oh. smell off the floor. Uh, just every time I smell, oh, that smell of summer. Every time I smell that, every year it just puts a smile on my face because I know, yeah, because I hate the wind. I hate winter. I'm just yeah. hate 
Uh, I hate it with a passion. But when it's summertime, I absolutely love it. So that's another smell that puts a smile on my face and makes me feel all warm inside, which is nice. Well, we had a bit of that yesterday because I was in London all day yesterday. I was cycling through Soho when the rains came down and washed all of the detritus, all of the traces of alcohol, vomit, MDMA, and the, the little remnants of hopes and dreams down the drains. And there's a certain smell of London in the rain as well. Now, when I'm back here in the Midlands, in Derbyshire, the smell is exactly what you've just described. The smell of the soil demanding water and sucking it back up. And I can't wait. I'm swimming in my lake tomorrow because I've not been in. The water's like maybe 30 centimetres below where it should be. So I'm hoping that everything's kind of softened and, and started to fill up again. I love I that. I think it'll take a while to fill that up. It won't go anywhere near where it was, but I just want anything. Like I just want any kind of fresh water going in there. It's been stagnating. Well, in, in the Midlands, you know, we're near the CEU, which is... I'm, I'm lucky sees on my doorstep. Ashby de la Zouche is my local town, and I'm as far from the sea as it's possible to get. That is the furthest point inland. It's shit, but it's all right. So that's your taste and your smell. I love that. That last one's brilliant. What did your childhood sound like? Uh, school was shit. Was it? Didn't really like that. So that was nasty. There's no happiness there. I'm just trying to find some from my childhood. Just being in a, being in the street, really. It was just, yeah. I guess my childhood really happened when I was 15, when I got a skateboard. Were you a street skater or a ramp skater? Street. Because I used to hang out in the streets. Uh, yeah, she did back then. She didn't have bloody computers and all that kind of stuff that kept us indoors. So we'd, we'd, I'd hang out on the corner of the street, Harriet Street in Cardiff. And then my mate, he got a skateboard and then I started having a go at it. And that's when I sort of, my fondest memories really were from as soon as I got a skateboard and then persuaded my mother to let me save one up because I used to be, I, I had a milk round, I had a morning paper round, an evening paper round and a milk round on a Saturday morning just so I could get some money and and it took me weeks to save up to buy a full setup skateboard. And uh, as soon as that happened, I sort of just went on my own little my own little mission then. I was happy as a pig and shit and I got away from all this, the other stuff and just I just had, I had a focus. And my focus was skateboarding. And that was 24-7. That's all I did. Did you have a happy childhood? I mean, not school. Was home happy? Was that, did, did you feel cradled? Uh, home, was, home was happy. School was not happy at all. Home was happy. Yeah, and home was what it was. But, um, yes, it's when skateboarding came into my life that I really had something which I was so grabbed hold of big time, really. Do you skateboard now? No, I don't. I did start skateboarding. I love it. I absolutely love skateboarding. And I've always said skateboarding made me who I am today and gave me what I've got today. But um, I made a decision. I, I did. I went to a, a mushroom ceremony with some shamans and stuff. And it just made me realise that because I started trying to skate again. And I was trying to do the stuff that I, I wanted to be able to do the stuff that I did years ago and I was trying to do the stuff that I used to do years ago I couldn't I was getting frustrated I was getting injured which then stopped me from doing my other stuff that I enjoy doing like cycling running going to the gym and I just and I did after the ceremony it just I know someone just said to me oh you need, just need to leave that you know you've been here you've done that let it go so I just thought yeah sod it man so I just let it go and just yeah I still love skateboarding because, I mean, there's a skate park. It's just on the road for me. The spit and sawdust. And they've just opened this huge new ramp and everything. 
People are, oh, just come for a cruise. The cruise never happens to me. As soon as I cruise and I have a cruise around, they get warmed up. There's that, oh, I wonder if I can do that again. And do you know what I mean? So just, yeah, they just my head, leave it alone. Just go there, go and watch other people skate and just watch, get enjoyment from seeing other people skate rather than me and actually kill it myself. So the, the way to look at this, I mean, it's fascinating. I skated as well, but I'm, I would, when did I skate? I was about eight, so it would have been about 1976, the hot summer. And I can't do tricks or anything. I can't do ramps. I can't, I just, longboarding is probably as good as it gets for me. But there isn't any excitement in longboarding. And I have a similar relationship with rugby. I love it. And it was a working class game in Leicestershire. It was very much like it is in Wales. We all played it and not just the poshos. And I went back to it at 30. I got marmalised. You know, I genuinely, it's one of those things where I just thought, I'm just going to watch it now because I can't, I can't protect myself. And I play touch rugby sometimes. That's like cruising for you. I can't leave it at touch rugby. I want to go and hit someone and get hit. And I, I miss that. Yeah, yeah. If I'm going in, I'm going in. I'm not, I don't, Tickle anything. I just, and if I can't go in, don't bother. So that's just me. So the, the way to look at that is, is maybe to look at how skateboarding made you feel and then find the thing that makes you feel the same, which could be swimming, surfing, it could be running, biking, all of those things that there's that adrenaline rush. And mountain biking brings to me the same kind of risk. There's that little bit of, oh, it's greasy on those tree roots. Best be careful or hit them fast. And there's there's a little bit of kind of risk there. Tell me about family. Tell me about the kitchen table. Tell me about sitting with your grandparents. What are those memories like from when you were a kid? We always used to sit at a table. Not like these days. Every food, people sit around TVs or they go to their rooms or whatever. Uh, back in the day, it was a family. You know, you your mother would call, say the dinner's ready, and you all sit around the table and you eat dinner together. And when I went to stay at my grandpa's house, he was married to the Lord Mayor's daughter. So he, they had this huge mansion up in Avakaveni. So we used to go and stay there for holidays. And their dinner table was a uh, prop full-size snooker table with this thing on top. So you take that off and then you play snooker and you had friends around and stuff. But... This table was huge, and because it was a farm, and they used to make their own wine, we'd all sit on this table and have food with them. And so, yeah, so we, when we were younger, food was done properly. You know, I learned cooking from my mother, and and just sat around the table how how you should eat your food, really, as a family thing. Yeah. And what's life look like now? Do you do you use a table? Do you cook from scratch now? Apart from when you were with Derek Sarno, when you do. Oh, I, I, I mean, not all the time. Crystal might be lying if I said that. I love cooking. It's therapeutic. It's what makes me happy. I really enjoy it. I cook pretty much almost every night from scratch. Sometimes I'll just buy something from a tin or whatever and it may be and just eat it, but I'd rather cook from scratch. Amazing. So, look, I've got this image of this kind of like, you, you, you're quite, a, I, I won't say a late blossomer, but but you found your passion at 15, which is, a little later than most people find theirs and a lot earlier than some people find theirs. How did you get from a skateboarding around Cardiff at 15 to doing all the crazy stuff that you did in your 20s? What was that journey? How did that work out? Well, I wanted to be a stuntman before I was a skateboarder. So when, when I was in school, I used to chuck myself out the second floor window and stuff. I do all like stupid stuff with my mate Roger O'Neill, who I actually went to see the other weekend. Actually, he worked in, in, in town. Oh, man, looking back, some of the things we used to do, jumping manholes in the street and all that kind of stuff. We used to love the Dukes of Hazard and Fall Guy. 
And then skateboarding happened, so that I guess that was another form of the stunt manny kind of stuff. And then obviously I was in college as well, doing uh, learning how to become a chef. Left there, got a job, worst experience ever in a restaurant, so that sort of put me off cooking. And then um, to cut a long story short to get to what you asked, I just wanted to clean windows with my mates, which was good. And then went from there to worked in a factory for three years, cutting tubes for heating elements, which was just hell on earth. But hey, it is what it is. And then I went from there, then I worked at a distribution company because I was a professional skateboarder as well. So that, that happened. And then I worked at a distribution company called Double Overhead, which was run by Brad Hockridge. And he sort of gave me a job there being a team manager for a shoe company called Globe Shoes because he was distributing them. So I was looking after the skate team. And then whilst I was working there, we did a video, Pritchard vs. Dayton, uh, which inevitably got us the show, Dirty Sanchez, and that's, that's how it all happened, really. So Dirty Sanchez was almost like an extension of the stuntman that I wanted to be. Or well, I'd say stuntman. I'd call it more daredevil than stuntman because none, none of the stuff was planned or mathematically worked out it was just oh, let's do it let's see what happens so um that's how it sort of happened really so i've always sort of been a, a lover of danger and living on the edge a little bit so i love this i mean it was brilliant by the way and exceptionally funny uh, my son's favorite program by absolutely miles cheers <laughs> he loved it yeah he's 26 now and uh, still talks about it but I love this idea. I love this. I love this fact that you, you are like the original Duke of Hazard, and and in, in not not Hazard County, just fucking dangerous shit happening in the streets. I think that's brilliant. How did that come to an end, Dirty Sanchez? Yeah, and how did you feel when it stopped? It just ran its course. We did three series. I mean, Dayton did another two series of other, uh, other things: The Wreck and Sanchez Get High. Did a film. We had all the the money, the investment to do the second movie, but MTV didn't want to do Dirty Sanchez, the movie too. They just put a stop to it all, and that's how we sort of come to an end, really. But we kept it at live shows. Me and Dayton were on the road for up until 2014 doing live shows, and that's when I chucked the towel in, because for me, there was a lot of stuff happening. It was, how can I say, the crowds were dwindling. I We were getting older. I thought, doing what we're doing on stage to not very many people anymore. But I just it just felt a bit wrong. So I just called it a day, man. I said, look, I, I know I saved up a bit of money from my years of doing it all. And my aim was to start a business. And I thought, right, well, now I can put all my time and energy into starting a business rather than going on stage and sticking drumsticks up my ass and smashing bottles on my head. And that's what I did. I just said, I'm off, and then started my business, uh, SWID Tattoo and Barbershop in Cav City Centre. I've never been a businessman. I've, you know, it was a big move for me. I was shit myself. I, is it going to work? Am I going to fail? Who knows? There's only one way to find out. I Mr. 50-50 himself just turned all my money into it, and luckily for me, it's still there today, and it's doing really well, and I've got an amazing team of people working around me, and I'm working in the shop, so I'm very grateful. And that there is a point where you realise what you're doing is harmful, whether it be physically harmful, I mean, literally, in your case, or whether it be psychologically harmful. And most importantly, constraining. You know, if you become the bloke that always gets hit, 
you're only ever going to be the bloke that always gets hit. If you can become the bloke that helps others express who they are, that's magic, right? That's about growth rather than about containment. And that's what I see in you. I see this transition from somebody who you know, clearly unbelievably talented and very brave through to somebody who is unbelievably talented and very brave in a completely different way. And what kind of lifestyle changes came with that transition? How did you change the way you lived? How did you change how you ate? How did all that change happen? Well, the shop opened in 2014. Then I turned vegan in 2015 after watching Cowspiracy. So that sort of got me back into cooking again mm-hmm. because I had to replace meat on my table, meat and dairy and everything. And I started doing research online. And, and so I was looking at a lot of food stuff online. And I've always cooked, don't get me wrong, but, you know, once you're on the point, you're doing Sanchez for less. I didn't really eat anything. Pro- it was just, I barely ate because it was we were constantly off my tits or constantly pissed. And we we're like, oh, it's a service station is eating crap. So it was nice to be able to start. And I just got back into the cooking again. So that is another thing that changed. And that's what, what well, I'm still doing that now. Mm. And what was the question again you asked? It was about the lifestyle changes. I was really interested in, in really, where you are now is where I am in terms of diet and, and stuff. And I think it's really enlivening. But I was really interested in what your friends, what the Sanchez boys, but more than that, the people around you, as you've changed, as you resonate at a higher frequency, how did they respond to that? Did they come with you on this journey? There's the fitness stuff that I, I started in 2011. I, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was doing it all, the party and the fitness. And that's one of the biggest things for me that changed my life. I mean, I did the others come with me, and they all did their own little thing. But we're all different, I guess, you know. I, you know they did their thing. I did my thing. And my thing was starting a business trying to keep fit and constantly fighting to stay away from um, abusing drugs and alcohol again. Life has completely and utterly changed and nothing like what it used to be. I mean, Christ, I get up at four o'clock in the morning. You can't do shit like that and get up at four o'clock in the morning. So I, I gave it up ages ago. And I've got rid of so many people from my life that were toxic. So that's another thing that's helped as well. Yeah, I have very few people I hang out with these days. I just literally hang out with less than a handful of people. Well, we've got a mutual friend and he's absolutely amazing. He's part of my, I run like a men's group online and Alex, I think you call him Dave. He's like instrumental in that community. He's he's incredible. Dave. I call him Alex. I think you call him Dave, don't you? Who's that? The guy did all the design work for the Prodigy. Oh, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. I called him Alex. He told me oh, you called me Dave. Yeah. <laughs> he calls me Clive. Yeah. He does call you Clive, which yeah, really yeah, fucking yeah. confused me when I got the yeah, when yeah. I got the intro. I'm yeah. like, who's Clive? Yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, he's a fucking Dave, Alex, whoever he's fucking brilliant, man. He's I, I like him a lot. He's a wonderful man, truly. And he's a big part of the community that I've built over lockdown. Just quickly before we leave Dirty Sanchez. Did you leave a bit of you behind on that stage? And if you did, are you glad that you did? I did leave a bit of me, yeah, behind. Yeah, that's a good question. I left a lot of me behind, but it had to be done. I saw it. I realised it. I, it had to be done. Otherwise, ideas are going to carry on until one just beat myself into the ground, into oblivion, and then regret not, you know, chucking the towel in and saying, I'm done just for the sake of keeping everyone else happy. It's like, you know, I've got to look after myself. Yeah. And, um, that was the time. 
So I just went, I'm done. I'm gone. Right. You know, thanks for everything. Thanks for the laughs. I'm off. Next chapter. Let's go. Because I've, I, lo- I love those days. Those days. Anyway, and I've, I've never said, you know, I've never pretended that I never enjoyed fame. I've never pretended that it wasn't for me. I absolutely loved every minute of it. It was just brilliant. But uh, like I said, to move forward, you've got to get rid of the past. And I, and I had to, and that's what I did. Yeah. I see that, right? And, you know, you're still famous, okay? There's no two ways about it. You're still... I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really, really, I'm not really nasty on that fame thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, like you said, people know who I am and stuff, but like then I loved it. Now I can honestly say I'm not really that asked about it. When people come up to me in the street, it freaks me out. I get quite embarrassed and stuff. Like years ago, I'd be like, yeah, we, oh, yeah, yeah. But today I'm just like, whoa, man, if, like, if, 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 if I'm in my shop in town and somebody comes in, Pritchard, I'll have a photo. Like, I get so embarrassed. I got everyone in the shop looking at me. And that kind of, st- I just like, whoa, oh, oh. I don't know what to do with myself. So, yeah, as I, yeah, it's not the same anymore. But it's interesting. I mean, when that was all happening, your super ego, your, your, your ego and your super ego, your super ego was in control. And, and rightly so, that you were the showman. It was, it was all about, look at me, I'm doing this. And, and you were very inspiring in different ways. And then, like, ego isn't always a bad thing. And we move into an ego phase. But the bit that, that we see now is the id. It's the sort of more spiritual side. That and I don't mean as in om, but it could be. But it's a more grounded side. And you spoke at an event just in South Derbyshire, I think Ticknell or somewhere. We missed you. We were absolutely gutted. It was about 10 miles away. And we didn't make it. But you're attracting a different crowd now. And neither are good and neither are bad. That's yeah. just the journeys that we, we make as we go through life and we spin our patterns. And what I see in you is I see someone that is really comfortable with who they are and how they're received rather than someone that needs to be the showman all the time. And that must feel a lot easier for you. Yeah, it does. I mean, I like my own company. I could stay in my own company and I'd be happy. As long as I've got my dog with me, I'm happy. You know, I don't crave being around people. Like I said earlier, I'm not really a big fan of people. I don't trust anybody. So I'm just like, I'm very offish. I'm not horrible to anybody, but it takes me a while to, to set somebody out and to make sure that they're not after. It's hard to explain, but um, whether they're going to use me for their own personal gain or whatever, so. I just tend to just uh, keep myself to myself. And I'm, at the moment, I'm working quite a lot with uh, psilocybin and psychedelics and stuff mm. with people to try and sort of rewire my brain and sort of be one with nature. And uh, I know I might sound a bit hippie, but well, that's, that's just what I'm trying to do at the moment and just realise that um, cause the world's a pretty in a bit of a mess and I don't think it's going to get better very soon. And so I'm just trying to work on making my head better, making me as a better person. And I said to my fiance this morning when I was walking the dog around the park, I said one of the worst things I think to ever happen to me was waking up. Because <laughs> I see so much now. Like years ago, I was so naive. Nothing bothered me because I wasn't aware of anything. But, oh, I'd say the last five years, I've woke up to so much bullshit. But it's a curse, right? You know, we say ignorance is bliss, and it truly is. To not <laughs> to not be encumbered or weighted down by these thoughts. And our journey inward 
you know, back in the day, back in the 80s, if you wanted to find yourself, you put on All Saints, Pure Shores, you jumped on a plane, went to Thailand, did yoga on a beach. Now to find yourself, you go inwards and you go deep. And psilocybin and uh, microdosing, all of those things, and ayahuasca, all of those things are, are aids to help us dig deeper. It's not hippie. It's not a party drug either. It's medicine. I don't care what anybody says. You know, the, the, the tribes in, in Peru, Amazon and everything, they've been using this stuff for many years as a medicine. Not to get off their tits and go, I'm off my head, like you would when you're a kid. Do you know what I mean? I did it when I was a kid. So like, but it's not. This stuff is medicine. It actually fixes your mind. It does. It's good for you. Only suggest everyone out there if you know if you're suffering with mental health problems or whatever it may be, especially mental health problems, sort getting those tablets off the doctor, those antidepressants. They're just going to make you even worse. Try and work with somebody. I know it's uh, oh, it's illegal actually. How funny is that? It's illegal. I said take mushrooms which grow in the ground, like not far from my house. I wonder why. You can't profiteer from it, can you? You can't trademark it and you can't make money off it. But if you look at what's happening in in America, you look at the legalisation of psychedelics. We're a bit more cautious, weirdly, but it's going to happen. And if you look at the big pharmaceutical companies, they're all over this. It's really interesting. Can they paint in mushrooms, though? No, they can't paint in the mushrooms. They'll always be available. But what they can do is take the extract and add it to other things and make a commercial product that is commercially acceptable or viable at that point. But there will be commercial gain this way. And it's really interesting. You know, For years, we've been like chanting and singing and stimulating the vagus nerve through voice. Now, the pharmaceutical company are developing something called electroceuticals, which are like TENS machines that stimulate the vagal tone. And we don't need it. You just got to go and sing with your mates. Do a bit of omin, do a bit of chanting. The answer's... We've always had them. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the pharmaceutical company extract that and put it into a tablet and stuff, I'm not interested. I want to take the natural thing. On the hills. And sit there with some people playing guitars, chanting and playing the right shamanic music, which I need to be hearing and listening to and yeah. just being in that nice, safe haven of loveliness and happiness. Hey, look, Richard, we'll bring this to an end now because you've been amazing and I really appreciate it. But I need you to know that you are, you're a truly kind soul and you're right to be guarded, but you can trust people again. You really can. It's going to be hard for you, but you can do it. And there's this wonderful cyclical story with you. You know, you're raised in whole food shops by a hippie (laughs) mum. That's where you are, right? And how is your mum? Yeah, she's good. I just do her edit. Just take the piss over all the time. But she loves it. It's good. That's amazing. She's great, though. I mean, she was 73 last week. She's still rocking. She's still fit. And she knows exactly what's going on. She's still eating wholemeal bread and doing a Tai Chi or whatever yeah. she does. My mum and dad crack me up, man. They're just absolutely hilarious. Their days are regimented. They've got their routine. On a Tuesday, they have like green tea in the night. Then on the whatever, they watch Countdown, so they have a sucky sweet. So they have a sweet whilst they watch Countdown. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday night, Eddie, my dad, then goes to the bar and pours my mother the trick at five o'clock, dead on. And like on the Saturday, so I'm always phoning them up like just before five o'clock on Friday, and they're like, "Yeah, what? Look, what? Yes, he's at the bar pouring me a drink. All right, he well, he better be on time." Just winding them up all the time. They're great. They're great laugh. 
I love it. But Pritchard, can you see that what is not transformed is transferred and your mum and dad's five o'clock drink is your five o'clock gym? Yeah, yeah this, you know, everyone's different, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. The tension here is that it's challenging to trust people when you've been in a position of success and fame and everyone wants to lean on you. Yeah. But as you grow and spread a different kind of good, you're only going to get it spread further when you're surrounded by the right people who lift you up and you're going to need to let a few in in order to save yourself in the long term. Oh, I don't, I can't, kind of don't let people in. Nah. I got my people. That's all I need. I can't let anyone else in just in case because I'm from poor. Yeah, honestly, trust me. I know I'm a nice guy and, I, and I'm too nice. And so many people have come in and pulled my pants down. Can't do it anymore. You know, it's just cool. I'm not, you know, I'm not kicking off about it. This just what it is. It's what's happened. I know that now. So I just don't just let anyone in anymore. It's gone. I get it. I get it. I do get it. There's some fascinating research about the most successful people in business or life or whatever. They're the givers. They're the people who give away the most. And then the, the next most successful are the takers, those that only take. We don't want any of them. Then the next ones are the matchers. You give, you take. And the least successful people, they're the givers again. And they're the givers that haven't worked out a strategy to stop the takers. And that's the answer, right? It's okay to give, but you just need barriers and you need to be able to go, I'm not going to spend time with you, right? Because you're, you're a taker. A bit of give and take is good. You know, I've, I've been quite lucky in life. I've had a, a lot of stuff and I'm quite grateful for it. But I also like to give back, you know, as a thank you for being able to have all those nice things in life and so, you know, it's just yin and yang, isn't it? You can't keep taking. If you keep taking, that's just selfish. No, I know. And what struck me was this image of you walking around your park with an empty bag, picking up rubbish in the morning. And that's good, though, man. I love it. It's great. That's brilliant. Yeah, I'm there with nature and everything in this bag. That's the image I'm going to end on. So we'll end the podcast now. Thank you. You're amazing. 